And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe, which, of course, is at the top of the other side of midnight.com uh, homepage. Welcome, one and all. We have a lot of new audience members tonight. We have uh, been doing some things behind the scenes. There have been some people who reached out and connected with us, and we have a whole additional new audience and in the coming days, I will explain more about how that's working and give you a more formal welcome, those of you who are joining us for the first time. But welcome. Tonight is kind of a continuation of last night. We're talking about kind of global things that are happening that you're not aware of that are going to affect you <clears throat> if they aren't already affecting you and you're not aware of it. And uh, before we get to all that, I want to do a couple of things. Obviously, one of the things I want to continue talking about is what's going on in the Bahamas, both on uh, Grand Abaco and Grand Bahama Island itself. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on the uh, uh, banner, which is for tonight, it's uh, Sunday night, it's September 8th. Uh, Brad Olson is my guest, and we're talking about what the blankety blank is going on in the Antarctic for real. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down right under the banner. You will see um, um, where it says fast links to items. Click on Richard. That takes you to my items in radio with pictures. Item number one, of course, are some of these horrific um, images from the ground after uh, Dorian left the Bahamas. Just shattering. I mean, it looks like a nuclear war. It, it looks like the aftermath of, of, of the apocalypse, which, of course, for those people, it was and still is. And um, that takes me to link number two, which is right under it. This is all the links, uh, the hottest ones, meaning the most reliable, for getting aid to these people. They desperately need aid. I mean, really, really desperately. So click on one of those. Click on all of them. Pick your, pick your poison, as my grandmother would have said. You've got Project Hope, you've got the Salvation Army, you've got Team Rubicon, which is a whole bunch of vets who are doing yeoman service at home now that they've come back from serving in, in the military overseas. You've got the Bahamas Red Cross Direct, you've got Hurricane Relief. Click one of those, click more than one, send as much as you can. These people need help. And I said last night, do not send canned goods or pampers or any of that stuff. Send money. Money is fungible. Money can be converted by people on site, on the ground, who know exactly what these people need, particularly water. They need water. Um, and bottled water is being flown in by the uh, plane load. So send money, really. Naked, please, send money. These people are at the moment probably one of some of the most desperate, desperate folks on earth. So um, speaking of water, maybe I should take some. Hold on. It got suddenly very dry here in the desert, in the land of enchantment. We've had very humid weather most of the summer. The monsoons should soon be over, and tonight it's a gorgeous night here. And, of course, the weather is now gorgeous in the Bahamas, but the ground situation is awful. So please avail yourself of those links. Send whatever you can. Every little bit helps. And at this moment, you know, people need to really open their hearts because those people need our help. Changing pace. 
I asked Robert Morningstar, who's going to be joining us later, uh, in the top of the third hour, um, if he knew what today was. And he, I said, now think back, think back over 50 years. What's today? And he thought, and he said, well, was it, was it something political? I said, no. He said, well, was it something? Anyway, so I you know, stopped his misery, and I said, tonight, literally tonight, is the 53rd anniversary of my friend Gene Roddenberry debuting Star Trek on NBC. So that's link number three. There's a beautiful story. There's an awful lot of accolades. There's some tweets from Shatner and Takei and others and uh, people whose lives have been changed. I mean, Star Trek has changed, literally changed not only our perception of life on and off the earth. It's given us such things as beam me up, Scotty, which, by the way, was I don't think ever really said in in the show. I've I've seen posts that, you know, they've gone through all the scripts and it was never really said exactly that way. Um, I might argue, but, you know, what's the point? Anyway, Star Trek had a profound influence because if you look around, an awful lot of things that we take for granted um, came from Star Trek, came from Gene's incredible vision and reaching out to his technical consultants, of which – I was a very minor player. Um, I will tell you one 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 funny story. Um, I got into watching Star Trek because that summer, the summer of '66, um, my parents, you know, they worked around the clock. They had restaurants, they had uh, bed and breakfasts. You know, uh, my mom worked as an executive secretary uh, for some time. Um, and we never were able as a family rarely to take a vacation. So that fall of 1966, we had decided to take a real vacation. We lived in Springfield, Massachusetts, and Cape Cod was kind of down the street, which for me meant the uh, uh, Massachusetts uh, Turnpike. So the idea was that first week in September to take two weeks and spend at the Cape. Uh, My parents rented a house and there were four of us. And, you know, I don't know whether you remember, but um, in those days we sang and um, the idea was to go down and kind of just have fun and go from, you know, Hyannisport all the way up to Provincetown. And when we finally got there, you know, we had fun. Well, in between this plan, which was to have a family vacation all together, I mean, we're teenagers. We're, you know, got our own thing going. And, you know, families then had hard times keeping it together. Families now, of course, it's impossible. So this was kind of like our our major one, maybe last time we'd all be together on vacation. The rare, rare, rare times that my parents took vacations. Well, lo and behold, on NBC one night, either that week or the week before, there came this trailer of this bizarre-looking saucer-shaped thing with two cigars sticking out the back, orbiting, obviously, a planet. And I look at this. Remember, it's black and white. It's not color yet. I look at this, and I go, whoa. Because really good science fiction on network television um, was rare. I mean, there had been the Twilight Zone that was in the 50s. 
there was the Outer Limits, which I never really got into. I only got into the Outer Limits much, much later. But really good network science fiction um, that wasn't cheesy grade B movies and, you know, bug-eyed monsters, we used to call them, was rare and far between. And we were literally at the threshold of the space. We were in the Gemini program. We'd had, you know, Mercury flights and all this. So I guess I was primed. I forget what teen year I was in. I could calculate it, but who cares? And I said to my parents, I will join you after Thursday night. I will drive down to the Cape. My, I have my own car. That's a long story. I will join you later. They said, why? I said, well, there's this show coming on, and I've got to see it. Remember, this is the days before videotape, the internet, no way you can see something delayed. You either got it live or you never saw it again, except maybe during a summer rerun. So that's what, what happened. I was there in the house all by myself with my popcorn, sitting, watching Gene's masterpiece on screen. And it was it was the one, remember, with Professor Crater and the uh, salt monster and um, Spock and, you know, the phaser. I mean, it had everything. And it was like, oh, my God, this is going to be better than anything. It just rang resonant with the quality that now an entire world appreciates. But in that lonely fall evening, all by myself watching Star Trek in black and white, I said, oh, my God, this is the beginning of something. And it was. Now, flash forward the film, because we're in film. Remember, no videotape. We're still in film. Flash forward the film. I'm in the middle of the Arizona desert, um, north of – I'm sorry, west – southwest of Tucson on a mountaintop called Kit Peak doing a site survey for a movie. And the movie is the big Star Trek movie of 1976, 10 years later. And I'm with, of course, the great bird of the galaxy, um, Gene Roddenberry, my friend Gene. And out of the blue, because I, I took him up to Kit Peak because I wanted, if you've ever seen Kit Peak, you can, of course, Google now, you know, the... Uh, the McMath Solar Telescope. It's so unusual. It's so alien-looking. It's so radically different that I thought that in the film there should be some some scene set there, even if it didn't call it, uh, you know, what it really is. Just because as a backdrop, as a set, it just reeked of celestial wonders and uh, you know celestial goings on. So there we are driving up to Kid Peak, and out of the blue. Gene turns to me because we're in the back seat and I forget who's driving. And he says, by the way, he says, Dick, I want to apologize for the really bad quality of the CGI in the opening of Star Trek, you know, when the Enterprise goes around the planet. And I look at him because that was what I saw that instantly hooked me on that September evening back, you know, 10 years. And I, looked, I said, are you serious? He said, oh, we could do so much better now. Well, of course we could. But I just thought it was so so emblematic. Gene Roddenberry was such a meticulous payer attention or two. Is that a phrase? Well, I guess it is now. That's why Star Trek resonated, because nothing was done slapdash. Nothing was 
kind of like a, you know, just an afterthought. He was still 10 years later wishing he'd been able to do the opening of Star Trek. This By then we knew that it was going to be, you know, there were conventions and they were planning that film and all this. So he knew it was a big success, but he was still thinking of what he could have done 10 years earlier that would have hooked more kids like me to stay home for a couple of days from vacation to catch the opening of history. Anyway, speaking of history, item number four. You may know because you listened to us last night, hopefully many of you, that uh, Chandrayaan-2, which is now real history in the making, the unmanned spacecraft, the follow-on to Chandrayaan-1, which in Sanskrit means mooncraft. I learned that uh, some years ago. Chandrayaan-2 is supposed to land safely on the moon, an unmanned uh, uh, probe called Vikram, named after the first name of Vikram Sarabhai, who was the genius creator of the entire um, Indian space program. Uh, Arthur Clarke knew him when I was, you know, knew Arthur and worked at Goddard and all that. So Sarabhai was, was a legend. Having his name attached to the first Indian lander on the moon was an extraordinarily good idea. Unfortunately, the lander, as you all know now, a few seconds before landing, less than a mile up, literally disappeared from radio. It just went away suddenly. Now, today there's been some announcements, um, one very brief announcement, very terse, on the Chandrayaan Update site, which is linked there in my uh, link number four. You might want to click on that and take a look because it's kind of government speak for we know no idea what the hell has happened, and we're still looking. And I heard a report from the New York Times this afternoon. Well, heard is probably the wrong word. Read that uh, the Indians think they've spotted it um, on an Indian um, spacecraft, the Chandrayaan-2 spacecraft thermal imaging camera, which means they're looking for a large splotch of disturbed lunar regolith because if you stir up the dust, the under the dust gets darker, and that will absorb more heat from the sun. And, of course, that will make a thermal image brighter and that may be what they're saying. They didn't give any pictures, didn't give any details. They just said they had spotted where it, quote, landed. It did not land. It crashed at over 100 uh, uh, miles an hour. So stay tuned for further updates. Um, in the third hour, when Robert and I you know, get to talking a bit more about this, I will give you some new information. Uh, I have a chance overnight to look at the link that he provided last night, and it's really all-encompassing. It's a wonderful uh, analysis of the real-time data that came back from the moon via the Chandran Vikram spacecraft, and it raises profoundly important questions. So, without further ado, uh, let me go back to my the top of the page where it says uh, "fast links to bios." Click on Brad Wilson. Brad Olson. What am I doing with names tonight? It's weird. Brad Olson is the author of nine books. Well, that's more than me, including two in the esoteric series, Modern Esoterica and Future Esoteric. An award-winning author, public speaker, radio show host of The Esoteric Circle, book publisher, and event producer, his keynote presentations and interviews have highlighted and entertained audiences at Contact in the Desert, Awareness Life Expo, 
5D events and dozens of radio shows, including Coast to Coast, Fade to Black, Ground Zero, and now The Other Side of Midnight, as well as television shows, including Ancient Aliens, America Unearthed, The Mysteries of the Outdoors. Brad is a founder and co-producer of the How Weird Street Fair in the Soma neighborhood of his home base, which is San Francisco. I left my heart. Yes, I did. I used to live there. Brad was featured on the front page of the SF Bay Guardian in September 2014. The Chicago native's esoteric writing continues to reach a wide audience while he continues breaking new ground in alternative journalism, public speaking, illustration, and photography. And apropos of tonight, um, by the way, everybody reload your browser, okay? Continue giving me an order. Reload your browser. You know who runs the show behind the scenes here. Reload your browser, the homepage of the other side of midnight, and then the guest page. Um, Brad is has just returned a few months ago from another expedition to the Antarctic, which, of course, is the theme of tonight's discussion. So without further ado, Brad Olson, welcome to the other side. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure and honor for me to have this discussion with you. Well, thank you for being here. I mean, I look forward to this because of all the weird stuff going on on the planet, and I include Washington, D.C. in that category right now, the place that perhaps is going to have the most profound, if unseen, influence on all of us, I think, is the Antarctic. And probably because more people with known names and huge reputations and celebrity status have been to and from a place that's really, really, really hard to get to. You really have to, like that old joke about Marin, you know, why does uh, uh, how many psychiatrists it take to change a light bulb in Marin County, California? Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. Well, all these folks really have to want to go to the Antarctic because you can't just hop on anything to just, you know, take a side jaunt and have dinner. You know, like some people with money have dinner in Paris. You know, they take their girlfriends on the Concorde back in the day. You can't do that with the Antarctic. So they really had to want to go, raising the question, why did they want to go and what did they go there to see? But before we get to that, I want to back up, way back, 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 back. I want to ask Brad Olson, how the heck did you get into all this? What's your because you know that bio is not a bio that's that's like a infomercial. Who is Brad Olson? Where did he start out? When did he raise his head and say, "Oh my God, the world is not like I've been told." Well, that's exactly how I got started because I realized at a young age that uh, not only was it a big world out there, and I had just grown up in the Midwest and only seen a tiny fraction of it but that there were so many mysteries and questions that I had about what's really going on out there. So it really my start is as a traveler and most of those nine books that I've published are travel related, including three in the sacred places, 108 destinations series. So I found myself going to a lot of these places I, as I travel around the world for uh Three years in the 1990s, self-financed after teaching English. Okay, okay, Japan. okay. Stop, 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 stop. You've skipped over huge, important chunks of history here. Where did you go to school? 
What did you want to do with your rest of your life? When did you make your first expedition? You know, that kind of interesting stuff. Oh, okay. Sure. Well, I graduated. There's a method to my madness. We're going to talk about some okay. impossible things tonight. The way yeah. audiences gauge whether the speaker is credible is to track their journey of a self-exploration to where they realize they can figure it out themselves. So this is not a trivial part of your story tonight. This is crucial because we all went through this process. Everybody listening to this show realizes the world is not the way it's being represented on CBS and NBC and Fox. So how did you get to where you wound up like the rest of us on the other side of midnight? Yeah, and especially growing up in a suburb of Chicago and going to Illinois State University where I graduated with a marketing and art degree. Oh, my God. I wanted to get into advertising. I, I was going to write uh, ad copy in Chicago because the Obnet and several other big agencies were there. You were going to become a madman. I, uh, I was, yeah. That was the original plan. Combine the marketing and art and uh, get into writing that way. I love headlines and always had a love-hate relationship with advertising. But it uh, instead I got a backpack in my 20s and basically decided to go see the world. It was probably the best decision I ever made in my life. And uh, it was always self-financed. First, I started with uh, three months in Europe right after college. Cool. And I thought it was so cool. Oh, oh three months, <laughs> self-financed. I'd meet these Australians and Kiwis. They're like, three months, mate. We've been on the road for three years. <laughs> so, well, how'd, you, how'd you do that? How do you do that? I said, well, you work your way around the world. And so that's what I did. I got a job teaching English in Japan and self-financed another three-year trip around the world. And that really opened my eyes to what was really going on, Richard. I mean, when you see someone starving to death in India and how the other half lives, which is pretty much in poverty, it really opens your eyes and makes you feel very grateful for having the opportunity to become whatever you want to become in America with a lot of hard work and sacrifice, mm -hmm. no doubt. But to have the perspective of seeing what is really going on outside of America, which we rarely catch a glimpse unless you're addicted to the travel channel or history channel. But even that's a sanitized view to see it with your own eyes is something else. And that's really end story. How I got down to Antarctica at the beginning of this year, uh, it was my seventh continent had to do it. Now I've been to all in the world. Oh, the ultimate bucket list. Yeah, <laughs> got that one under my belt. Uh, but I went with my beautiful partner, Emily Infinity, who just produced the Detroit Disclosure Conference Day in Detroit, and it was a big raging success, so happy for her. And she and I went to South America for four months. I bought a SUV vehicle that we could sleep in, that we cooked out of, that we got around five countries in South America and then all the way down to Ushuaia, Argentina right or right before New Year's Eve last year. And we didn't have any reservations. It was still high season. For a while it didn't look like we were going to get even on a cruise ship, but then just the way the universe works when you talk to people and get yourself out there, we got on a sailboat for 26 days like the ultimate way to go explore 
the Palmer Peninsula of Antarctica. It was the greatest opportunity to go see the White Continent. And, uh, of all the places I've been, it's certainly in the top three of blow your mind, beauty, and unique experience. Hmm. Well, so you so you leapt off from the the, the uh, tip of South America. Did you get to Bariloche, by the way? Oh, we sure did. And part of my four-month trip in South America was in search of escaped Third Reich. Oh, top oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we got some good clues on that. As you know, the History Channel has a great show called Hunting Hitler with all the evidence that they had set up the Third Reich down there, now becoming the Fourth Reich, or more commonly called within their circle, the third power hmm. because they were countering the Soviet bloc versus NATO. And they were just an intelligence operation down there. They didn't have a standing army anymore. But what they did have was base 211 on the Antarctica continent, otherwise known as New Berlin base or New Schwabenland. And that's a very difficult location to get to, but um, not, Ruling it out, going back and possibly exploring that area, the Beardmore Glacier and the South Pole. And I can tell you significance of why those locations are really important. Okay, well, let's get to those in the next half hour because we're coming up to the break sure. here at the bottom of the hour. But let's continue with your, your journey. So you were able finally to get the seventh continent. You're on a, on a, on a, on a, on a you know, sailing vessel. How, how big was the, uh, the sailing vessel? 74 feet long, and there are 14 of us total. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. But in those waters, those are the most raging waters on the planet. Oh, they really are. The Drake Passage is called the Drake Shake for good reason. Mm. And we were going with a crew from Poland who had just sailed their boat down there on the maiden voyage. They had never gone before. Nobody on our boat had ever sailed to Antarctica before. Mm. Now, uh, but we felt confident that uh, they could do the job. And the first day going out on the Beagle Channel, there's penguins and dolphins swimming alongside the boat. And I put my arm around Emily. I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> well, then we made that turn onto the Drake, and it wasn't so great. And while their intentions were pure to try to catch the tail end of a storm to get us down to Antarctica in record time, which we did. What? Uh, we didn't catch that's quite ins- the that's tail a, That's end. insane. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. We what? got in a storm that was an 11 out of 12. Oh, good. Anything above 12 is a hurricane. So we threw up a lot. <laughs> I lost about 25 pounds. Wow. And it was it, – you couldn't move from your bunk. That's what it was for four days. And it was really intense, but we finally got down there, and – we are welcome up and, to the Polish and, base. And you and Emily are still together? We are still together, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she didn't look she at was. you and say, how did you talk me into this? <laughs> well, I think her family was a little more upset with me than uh, <laughs> than she was when she told them how frightening it was. She thought we were going to die on the Drake. And I've had sailing experience with my dad in the Caribbean, Great Lakes, and we've been in storms. And as long as the boat is not taking on water, you're not going to sink. And that's why I kept telling her. And the boat did not take on water, and we got there. And then when we came back, we took our Dramamine in time so we didn't get seasick. So it was just the way down that was really brutal. Hmm. 
Okay, we're coming up to a break here, so um, I, I just am, am fasc- fascinated that you guys took a took it. Was it technically a sloop or a windjammer or what? Uh, it was a former racing boat built in New Zealand that was then like a greyhound. They don't last very long. They race for a couple of years and then they retire. And this boat was then outfitted to do expeditions. And they're going down there again. The, it's called the Chief One. And I think they're sold out for three trips to Antarctica. And they're also doing a couple to Cape Horn. But they're not going to do the uh, catching the tailwind of a hurricane again, right? No, I think they learned their lessons. And then we got hit by a couple big waves and we lost about $6,000 worth of equipment, oh including one of our dinghies. So oh they, they learned that I'll tell you, hold it there. My guest is Brad Olson. He's obviously going to be riveting us with a tale of exploration in person, in situ, to the bottom of the world. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for Sunday night, September 8th, the 53rd anniversary of Star Trek, Gene's vision, which has taken us boldly where we now know someone has gone before. So, Brad, um, were you just interested in kind of making, you know, your bones on the seventh continent, or did you have a game plan about what would happen when you went to the Antarctic and the folks you wanted to talk to and the things you wanted to find out? Yeah, great question. And that's exactly why I was going down there because I've heard about so many things that are happening down there, so many of these even paranormal type events, uh, crafts under the ice, pyramids poking through, antediluvian civilization. You realize I really, really, really hate that term, right? Antediluvian? No, paranormal. 
paranormal? It's not okay. paranormal. It's normal. It's just not known. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> crypto normal. How about that? Mm, that gets close to cryptozoology, but okay, I, I, I can fly with that. Go ahead. Because I was just uh, at the property adjacent to Skinwalker Ranch a couple weeks ago. Ah, ah. That's a weird Well, again, that stuff is not para. It's just part of normalcy that we're not normally exposed to. Yeah, I could live with that. Okay. Anyway, so you went down there with a mission. Yes. Yes, it wasn't just to do a pleasure cruise. It wasn't just to step my foot on the continent and say I'd done it. No, I, I very much was interested in researching many of these locations. And in fact, I speak about them at conferences since I've been back and still have two more this year at uh, the Avatars of Earth up in Mount Shasta in September last weekend and then Dis uh, Disclosure Con in Arizona, first weekend of October. And then I'm booked like uh, half a dozen conferences for next year already because this is a very hot topic. And people that know me know that I go there with intent. And if I don't find anything, I'm going to tell you I didn't find anything. And we didn't find a flying saucer, for example. We couldn't <laughs> even find anyone who knew anything about that. So I'm more skeptical of those pictures that uh, were in the Orion conspiracy video. It's about the only place I've ever seen them, and, and that's known to be a hoax. So what is down there? Well, we went to six different research stations, Emily and I, and she helped me with the questioning. And anybody who had talked to us that could communicate with us, because there are many languages down there, most especially Spanish, but they could. They could speak English, at least rudimentarily enough. And we also interviewed a bunch of boat captains on New Year's Eve at the Ushuaia Yacht Club. We got invited to the New Year's Eve party. And nobody knew about the nobody knew anything about a craft under the ice, but you got to understand Antarctica is a massive continent. It is the fifth largest continent in the world, and right now it's still pretty dark down there. There's only a thousand people on the entire continent, the fifth largest continent of the world, twice as big as Australia. One thousand people. Well, that so we that, hang on, hang on, hang on, that we know of. Yeah, well, that we know, that are that are in the above ground research stations, the skeleton crew, that number swells to many thousands at the research station. Then, of course, tourism kicks in, but only about three hundred fifty thousand known people go down there every year. And that's uh, not a trivial number. It's you know, it sounds big, but if you think about how big Antarctica is, and mm -hmm. it is about the size of the lower 48 in Canada combined, 350,000 people in all that land. You know, some of our small cities or big towns are only 350,000. I was going to say, but they also don't get to see 99.9% of it because it's always – they go to the coast and where the where there's facilities, right? That's absolutely right, yeah. Yeah, it is total barren wasteland. The eastern Antarctica is covered in over two miles of ice. It's called the uh, the Arctic Shelf, uh, and it is just a vast wasteland. It's very dry. It's a desert continent. A big problem at some of the bases, especially the Amundsen-Scott South Pole base, is uh, static electricity. Mm. Because it is so hot, so dry that uh, 
no moisture falls. And there are the dry valleys near McMurdo, the largest base of all, which is featured in the image for the show tonight. Uh, the, those dry valleys. Are we talking the, about the, your the, first image? The, the whale bones? Oh, not that one. No, the what in the hell is really going on in Antarctica. Oh, that one, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, our the, show tonight. Yeah, that's, that's McMurdo. That's McMurdo, yeah. Or Mactown is the nickname. Now, when you when you take a sloop or a, or a whatever, Rinjam or whatever they call this thing you were on, 70-some feet, <clears throat> and you sail to Antarctica, where do you land? How are they prepared to receive the um, <laughs> the bottom feeders of the planet? Tourists, tourists. <laughs> yeah. Actually, they're very welcoming because you don't get a lot of tourists, or if they do, they're just cruising by on cruise ships. The great thing about a sailboat is we had the larger dinghy that we could go ashore, that we could do little expeditions. Ah. We could see a penguin colony and just go bust over there and go walk around them. No supervision whatsoever. Uh, now, this, this, was, this wasn't a Zodiac. This is a real, you know, like a like a motor, motorboat. Well, it was a Zodiac with a motor on it. Oh, okay. So, so it wasn't was... inflatable. We lost the other dinghy on the way down. Hmm. But the uh, great thing about this area of Palmer, not only is it incredibly physically beautiful with just mountains rising straight up out of the mountain and glaciers on all sides, really the only colors you see down there are blue of the sky and the ocean, black of the rock and the animals, and white, which is also on animals, but snow. Mm. And, and it occurred to me that when you go scuba diving really deep, and I went down to about 200 feet once in uh, Dahab, Egypt. You're not supposed to go more than 100. But the phenomenon is you lose all the primary colors except for blue and then black and white. So it's kind of like you're going to an alien planet where you only see these colors. Oh, wow. It was something that just struck me when I was there that I wouldn't have thought of going into it. And then there were so many other experiences like that, including how tame the animals were. They just have no fear of humans. You can go right up within a couple feet of a mother penguin and her baby underneath her. And it's like she doesn't even see you. She's like kind of looking around you like, get out of my way. I, I had a great view here. <laughs> oh, my God. Set up. And whale went under our boat. Uh, seals, we'd be going by and they'd be on icebergs. And they were just as curious to see us as we were of them. It's just really amazing amount of wildlife. And Antarctica is all protected under the Antarctica Treaty. So everything below 60 uh, latitude south is encompassed in the Antarctica Treaty, meaning there's no mining, there's no fishing, there's no hunting. And it is a protected continent. It's like a biosphere park of the world. And it's a, a great treaty that's held strong since uh, 1961 when it fully went into effect. And it has preserved this continent for all of us, including tourism. And I was actually quite surprised how easy it was to go and then go wherever we wanted to. Uh, now, mind you, we were just on the northern tip of the Palmer Peninsula. But you asked how we got there. So we first went to the South Shetland Islands, which is a chain of islands uh, north and west of the Palmer Peninsula, and there was a Polish base called Arktowski, and that was our first landfall. Boy, were we glad to see land, and even more <laughs> glad to step on solid land. After going and to the Drake Passage, yeah. 
Yeah. And on a sailboat, Richard, you just bring everything you need for the whole month almost that we were out there. But we brought them fresh fruit and vegetables, which they don't get at the bases. So oh. we did that at all the bases that we went to, at least the ones that we were spending uh, overnight at. And they were so grateful. I was going to uh, say, that's a very, very bright idea. Whose idea was that? Oh, the captains. And they set up the, the visit before we left because they were mostly Polish and this is a Polish base. So it was great merrymaking. We were playing music and, and drinking and they broke out some glacier ice, which was blue. And we made uh, mixed drinks with it and it popped like popcorn. I'll never forget it. You put the ice with the whiskey and it's pop, 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 pop. Wow. And so that was fun. We had a bunch of musicians, including Emily Infinity and a great guitar player on our boat and then other musicians at the bass. And it's just that kind of fun. You, you said uh, with your family you used to sing and, and do things like that. You know, I really wish we would do that more often, sit by the campfire and tell stories and sing songs that just seems to have dropped away in this country. Yeah. yeah. You know, Peter Jennings, before he died, talked about when we have these national events, and most of them now are tragedies. But he talked mm. about the networks as the great national campfire where we mm. could gather and commune and experience things together. For me, of course, the epitome was the uh, moon landings that I was part of. And, you know, that, that was unprecedented and an extraordinary event. And you could see on people's faces all over the world, they didn't see it as an American experience. They saw it as a human, their experience. They kept saying to our guys, we made it. We made it. I mean, we've got to we got to bring that back. Yeah, yeah. And then I realized how much I missed it when we were doing it because we had no internet except for maybe three hours at Arktowski. So we had no TV, no internet, no nothing. Oh, fact, we didn't even know that the yeah, what really was. We didn't even know that the government shut down had been resolved until we got to Palmer base, which is the American base. Right. And they told us, Oh yeah, they, they figured that out two days ago. And then Super Bowl Sunday was our first day back on the Drake. And it was laying in our bunk uh, all day, just thinking, Oh man, this will be a Super Bowl Sunday to remember. That's the part I think, I, I think I'd rather fly in as opposed to do that. And people do do that. It is becoming more and more popular to fly in. Um, and you do fly to uh, South Shetland Islands is the first landing place. Uh, and then you can get on – some people get on a boat there, so they'll skip the Drake and mm. just sail on the calm seas between the islands. And in the islands, mm. there's really – not a whole lot of weather. It was quite smooth sailing. We went into Deception Island, which was a sunken volcano with just one little narrow entrance, which has sunk a lot of ships. Uh, and when we went on shore to an old whaling station that had been destroyed by the volcanic action, the sand was steaming. So we took our shoes off and we were walking around oh in the water. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, had the tide not been coming up, we could have just stripped our clothes off and taken a hot tub. Huh. Yeah, well, that so sounds there's, like... there's just so many surprises like that, left and right. So you were royally welcomed at these bases because you brought fruit, which is an incredibly good idea. Where was you, you? You landed at Palmer. Did you get over to McMurdo? No, McMurdo is on the east. Uh, 
Antarctica side, pretty much opposite where we were. But uh, Palmer Base, the American base, is very hard to get into, and it w- wasn't for my personal persistence uh, getting on the radio, emailing them, uh, even when we were at Arktowski Base, and asking permission, and finally them saying, okay, you can come ashore one day. They basically turned down just about everybody that asked, because it is very strict research station. But because we were three Americans and tax-paying citizens, everything – at that base, and I believe McMurdo as well as the South Pole base, all goes through the National Science Foundation, which is a taxpayer-funded program. So in a way, they kind of had to allow us to come ashore because we were fellow Americans. Interesting. Yeah. Now, they're headquartered in Denver, I think, at least with the jumping-off space. They are. And the other thing – that I realized and learned was that almost everybody, well, there is no military. We thought there'd be military presence, ship. only in emergencies will the military come in and help out the base or emergency medevac out. Everybody is a contractor and out of Colorado. Yeah, they, they hire. And I saw a posting about a month ago, anybody that wants to work in Antarctica, apply now. And uh, you can go down there, and it pays pretty well, although loneliness does set in. But if you're just there for the season, which is about four months from beginning of November till the end of March, it's pretty doable. Sunrise sunrise to sunset at the South Pole. Yeah, yeah. And we got all the way down to the Vernansky Base, which was just above the Antarctic Circle. Now, we are six weeks after the solstice, but it was still about 22 hours of daylight, which is another really fascinating thing. It just kind of it's light out for about 16 hours and then three hours of twilight, two hours of pitch black, and then three hours of twilight again. Hmm. So it was cool to experience that uh, almost 24 hours of light. Yeah, that's kind of like my experience in Sweden, where you'd be out walking at 4 o'clock in the morning and it's like twilight. Yep. So when you were down there, you said you had resistance getting in, but once you were there, they welcomed you. They they showed you what they're doing. Um, I mean, what what kind of research do they do? For the most part, they'd show us what they're doing. Well, Emily and I wanted to get to the bottom of a lot of our questions. And sometimes we would just get taken to the tourist shop. Each one of them had like a little building where you could buy mementos, this or that. And we'd try to ask them, hey, you know about this UFO under the ice? No. You know about these uh, antediluvian ruins that are supposedly being excavated? No. Uh, And I don't think they knew. I think a lot of them are seasonal and then some of them are young. Some of the bases are only working on biological studies, like studying the ice fish that live in sub-freezing water under the ice. And there are a whole new species of fish. They have clear blood. They uh, have no hemoglobin to survive those cold climates. And once again, there are just unique species down there that are only in Antarctica. Uh, So a lot of the marine biologists would show us what they're working on and one guy showed us his booklet of the ice fish and how they're related to the mackerel and different uh, varieties of them that they study down there others work on watching the climate 
And it's really interesting. One of the pictures I sent you shows blue and red on the continent. Red is extreme warming. And there are areas where it is warming up quick. Hmm. Uh, and other, other areas of Antarctica that are gaining ice. So it somehow Mother Nature has found a balance where it's not raising the sea level. It's just accumulating now, that's in different and others. Now, is, 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 yeah. is, is Palmer on the peninsula? Yes, it is. Okay. But it is on an island uh, just off the mainland. Okay. Because I'm looking but at link number two in your section. So the, so the red areas are the ones that are warming. And the blue areas are the ones that are cooling, and the white areas are the ones that are kind of remaining the same. That's correct. Hmm. Yeah, and you can see the red area of northern Palmer Peninsula is hmm. deep red. Very, very. Yeah, and there, there are new islands that are emerging. Just even in the last decade, they're finding new islands that they thought were connected to Anvers Island, which is the island where Palmer's on. The ice melts, and the last one was on Pi Day about five years ago. Now they named it Pi Island, which is reminiscent of the Piri Reefs map, which showed oh, yeah. islands around Antarctica that had yet been discovered. Now, do they have in this these really gift shops and these tourist things, do they have little representations of fossils that have been found and carboniferous forests? And I mean, there was a whole ecosystem on that peninsula, which is staggering if the planet has always been that place is six months in darkness because it would kill everything. I mean, you can't grow forests the size of these fossils I've seen in six months. Come on. Yeah, that's right. In fact, in the Palmer base, they had a replica of a dinosaur bones, like uh, the Loch Ness monster. I think it's a plesiosaur. Plesiosaur, yeah. Plesiosaur. They found one not too far away from the Palmer base, and they have a big life-size replica of it on one of the hallway walls there. What happened to the original? Well. This is the thing about Antarctica. It had once been a tropical. No, no, no. I'm saying you said they had a replica. What happened to the original fossil? Oh, it's probably with National Science Foundation that they use it to study. They wouldn't want it. Oh, so they sent it home. They sent it back to the States. I believe so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As they have many fossils. Now, there are two dinosaur species that have been found in Antarctica that are indigenous to only Antarctica. Now, dinosaurs, they're cold-blooded creatures. They could never survive in freezing temperatures. No, of course not. That, as well as the remains of ferns and other tropical fossils that have been found in the mountains of Antarctica, most especially around the Beardmore Glacier. There's a mountain on the top of the Beardmore called Mount Buckley. And this is one of the reasons why the Scott expedition got bogged down and everybody died. They were just 35 days behind Amundsen, the Norwegian, who was the first in the South Pole. And the Scott party got bogged down because they were collecting so many fossils and carrying them back to take them oh. to the, uh, the, the Science Foundation of the UK that uh, it ended up killing them. Oh they, all God. five of them died. And they died in the ice, and they're still there. Because when the rescue party came the next year, they couldn't take out the bodies. They just buried them in the ice, and there they remain, including uh, Scott himself, one of the greatest explorers yep, yep. 
of the last hundred years. Okay, did you ask any of the biologists how could there be a flourishing ecosystem? Because, of course, you know, the debate between hot-blooded and cold-blooded dinosaurs, notwithstanding, 66 million years ago, the idea that you have angiosperms and ferns and plant life and, you know, in other words, what do they say when you gently point out, well, there's six months of darkness and everything freezes? Well, obviously, this continent had shifted down into its present position at the bottom of the world, that the only way ferns and dinosaurs and other tropical and subtropical creatures could have existed is mm -hmm. if that continent of East Antarctica uh, was up at more northern climes where these um, flora and fauna could have existed. But see, that's according to the current so-called plate tectonics model where you have continents rafting around the earth like you know ships going through the Drake Passage. There's another well, the, possibility, which I'm sure you're that? aware of, the expanding earth model. Okay. Where everything has stayed in place, and if you just shrink the Earth, all these continents come back together like a jigsaw puzzle, and you reverse the film, and they expand over hundreds of millions of years, billions of years, to the current size of the planet, and there's evidence from elsewhere in the solar system, and I had a, a guy on many years ago, a couple of years ago, Neil Adams, who's a leading proponent of this model, they're stunning geological evidence, primarily beginning in the 50s from a geologist from Australia, whose name escapes me at the moment, but there's real good, excellent, solid science that doesn't have rafting continents at all. It simply says that we're on an expanding planet that was much smaller once, and that, of course, affected other things, including the gravitational field of the planet, which was much smaller than which is why you could have huge dinosaurs at all. Hmm. Well, I, I took a trip down the Grand Canyon, which is about a mile deep, as you know. Yep, and, been and there. One, one of the locations you go by the original core of the Earth, and it was explained to me, you see all the layers of sediment and deposits, and you're right, this planet is expanding quite a bit over the eons of time. Well, one, that's one model. The other, the other model is that the, the Colorado River is cutting down through the various strata, and I think you're talking about at the very bottom is what they call the basalts of the Vishnu Schist. That's it, yep. Yeah, and that would be the original mantle of this planet in one of the few places it's actually uh, visible. Mm. So anyway, back at the South Pole, did you get to the real South Pole? Oh, no. Oh. No, no, no. That's many thousands of miles away from where we were. Uh, it is doable, and there are expedition companies that take you Well, there. you don't have to take a dog sled anymore. You can take a helicopter or, or an airplane. No, in fact, dogs are not allowed anymore because they're not indigenous. Uh, you have to fly or take some kind of snowcat to drive out there. Most of the supplies come from Mactown. McMurdo to South Pole Amundsen Scott Station via snowcat trains. Mm -hmm. They'll just link up all these trains and take all their supplies out there. One thing we did learn about South Pole, Richard, you'll find this very interesting, is there is a giant no-fly zone very close to the South Pole Station. So even if you're coming in uh, from a direction and this no-fly zone is in between you and the landing pad near the base, they make you go around it. 
there's no exceptions. Do they explain why? Well, they do. They say they're working on very sensitive weather and sound uh, operations called Ice Cube, and they're putting sensors into the ice to measure the climate, the atmosphere, and the ice itself. Yeah, Ice Cube is a series of – Ice Cube is a huge array of um, scintillometers and gamma ray um, Serenkov radiation detectors, basically photometers looking for twinkles of light, and it's buried a mile under the ice. How can flying over it affect it? Well, exactly. Uh, That's the rumored home of a giant opening in the ice that goes down through the polar plateau, however far it's supposed to be massively wide across, enough that Admiral Byrd said he flew a plane into it and into it, around it, and came out again. Uh, well, that's, that's been the kind of the new there. age – Brad, that's been the new age interpretation of that. You know, he flew beyond the pole, but that's not – I don't see that as a physical, you know, because we never found any diary entries of, of him actually doing that. Right. Right. It's it's an interpretation. It seems pretty unlikely. You just say, hey, look at that big hole. It's turned down in it. And you'd fly, <laughs> you'd fly over it maybe, but you wouldn't fly into it. But why would they make it a no-fly zone year-round when there's only 1,000 people on the whole continent right now and only a skeleton crew at the South Pole base. Well, the obvious answer is there, there's something they found they don't want anybody else to see they found, period. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if I had the opportunity to go back and were able to go to the South Pole, I would very much look into if the NSA is positioned down there because, you know, and I know that they're pretty involved with anything extraterrestrial or security related to that. And if even just one NSA personnel were found at the Amundsen Scott South Pole Station, I would say that that's pretty good sign that there is some kind of massive opening hmm. not too far away. And it's supposed to only be like uh, six or ten miles away from the base, that it is right there at the South Pole. Hmm. Well, a lot to talk about. We're at the top of the hour. Uh, my guest this morning is Brad Olson. And we're discussing the mysteries of the South Pole. And what you probably found out now is that when you go down there and walk in the front door, you don't get a lot of insight because nobody seems to know anything. Now, the question is, the real question is, did they find things that they're not, in fact, telling us? And the folks that think they know don't know because no one has told them. That's one of the things that I think we're going to have to pursue when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Um, We're going to be joined by Robert Morningstar at the top of the third hour. And when we come back, we're going to get into the really good stuff, which why are all these very famous people, all these connected people, why did they show up at the South Pole? And do any of the folks down there that uh, Brad talked to, do they know anything about all these famous people? Here on the other side of midnight, we shall return. <laughs> 